book we've been reading is the book of Job. And so this morning, as Alistair said, we're just going to reflect for a moment on this very profound book, a beautiful book of poetry. But the book that the Lord's been bringing me back to again and again over these last several weeks has been the book of Proverbs. And I think he's been graciously doing that because he wants to remind me, Nigel, you have a lot to learn. There is so much more wisdom that you need to step into. And um, in modern parlance, we've got used to using that term, I think it's it's the facepalm moment, where basically it's that sort of, what on earth possessed me in saying that or doing that? And uh, over the last while, over these last several weeks, I think I've had those metaphorical facepalm moments where the Lord has been saying to me, what possessed you, Nigel, to do that or to say that? Often those things are just silly things. And we just think, have I not learned to, to live a, a disciplined life? Have I not learned to live a wise life? Have I not learned to live by practical, sensible decisions? Sometimes there, for all of us, there are immoral issues where the Lord's saying to us, actually, you know, Nigel, that's not right. And uh, that's what the Lord does whenever He's teaching us and training us. And I think the book of Proverbs is a fantastic resource for us in terms of that. There are so many different themes in Proverbs, but there are ones that if you've read it through it over these last weeks, you'll have noticed come up again and again and are summed up in, in ones like Proverbs 3, 7, don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Listen to your parents. Avoid the immoral woman was the advice to the young man in Proverbs, and we would want to add to the young woman, avoid the immoral man. Work hard. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Proverbs 10, 19, and I quote, says, keep your mouth shut. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. The overarching message of of Proverbs is clear. As we seek to live in a holy reverence for God, as we seek to say, you know everything, I know so little. You are pure and blameless and good, I am not. And yet you, I know God, love me, Lord. You have given me this wonderful gift of life. For some reason, you cherish me and you provide for me and you love me. And so in that context, we have a developing holy fear of the Lord. And that, the Bible says, is the foundation of wisdom. It's the place where all wisdom springs from, having that perspective of the way things actually are. Job is presented to us as a man who would be like the poster boy of the book of Proverbs. As one person I heard say over this last week said, Job, super good guy. The Bible says of him at the start of Job, there was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless. He was a man of complete integrity. He feared God and he stayed away from evil. He does exactly what the book of Proverbs says he should do. And because of that, the Bible says he was blessed. 
he enjoyed all sorts of blessings, material blessings, relational blessings, reputational blessings, because he lives this life of wisdom and integrity. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. So the book of Proverbs, the book of Job, tells us that this is what we should expect will be the outcome if we live a wise life in the fear of the Lord. We will enjoy material, relational, reputational blessing. Job also had a large united family. He was respected for his wisdom. And then a sudden series of catastrophes took everything away. He was left in poverty, disfigured by disease, and he was disgraced in the eyes of the community. And the conventional wisdom of the time presented by Job's so-called sufferers stated that Job must have committed some sort of dreadful sin. This morning we heard one of Job's poetic speeches as he responded to one of his comforters, Bildad, who very unwisely and unhelpfully had accused Job of hidden sin. For, for a long time, whenever they came to see Job sitting in dust and ashes, having lost everything, they very wisely, day after day, sat with him and said nothing. Their mistake came when they opened their mouths and they began to speak. The book of Job is a series of dialogues between Job and his comforters. And each time, Job protests his innocence, and he does it boldly, asserting that since the Lord is in charge, the Lord must have made some type of dreadful mistake. And so Job says to Bildad, how long will you torture me? How long will you try to crush me with your words? You've already insulted me ten times. You should be ashamed of treating me so badly. Even if I have sinned, that is my concern, not yours. You think you're better than I am, using my humiliation as evidence of my sin. But it is God who has wronged me, capturing me in his net. Job's poetic speeches are beautiful and, understanding, and understandably as a man who has lost, it seems, everything. It's not surprising that his speeches are full of anger and they're full of sorrow and they're full of frustration. But they're also full of faith. As Karen read for us this morning, those, those wonderful words in Job 19, 25. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, says Job, and He will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see Him for myself. Yes, I will see Him with my own eyes. 
I am overwhelmed with the thought. Ultimately, Job, Job's complaint is against God. And finally, he hears from God himself. He has this revelation of God speaking to him out of the dynamic whirlwind. And Job glimpses the infinite knowledge and wisdom of the Lord, and he recognizes his own utter ignorance. And Job is rendered virtually speechless. His last words in the book are addressed to the Lord. I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. The big surprise comes towards the end of the story, and it concludes with the Lord vindicating Job saying that despite all his rantings, Job is the one who has spoken the truth. Perhaps not all the time, but generally, it's Job who has got it right. And then we hear about Job's life, the second half of his life being blessed with long life and even more blessings than originally before he was tested with suffering. And that is that's the context of the whole book. It's the context of this test of this man, Job. And so when we start to read the book of Job, we get a glimpse behind the curtain. We get to see what's really happening. This moment as Satan stands before the Lord and asks, well, suggests that he might be able to test blameless Job. In the end, Job understands that the Lord alone sees all things. Job trusts that the Lord is good and will set all things right in the end. When we come to the end of the book of Job, we may want a straightforward answer to the question, why does the Lord allow the blameless to suffer? No such answer is given. But I think the writer of the book of Job wants us to realize that that's not the question we should be asking at all. The question the book of Job directs us to is this one. Would a man continue to love the Lord 
even when the Lord's blessings are withdrawn from him. As Christians, we can answer that question with a resounding yes. Because we know of a man, utterly innocent, utterly blameless, who when everything was stripped away from him, still loved his heavenly Father as much as ever. He stepped into this sin-broken world, leaving behind the glory of heaven. And at our hands, he was humiliated, being stripped, mocked, spat on, beaten, and crucified. In fulfillment to Isaiah's prophecy, and in contrast to Job's many ranting words, Jesus was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. And all of this so that our foolishness, our severe lack of wisdom, our guilt, our shame, our suffering, and our death would be overturned, that by His wounds we would be healed. And so that just as our Redeemer lives, we too will live. As we often sing, there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. When I stand in glory, I will see His face, and there I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. We are a people who believe in the resurrection. We've been singing about it this morning. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe there was a man, fully man, flesh and blood like you and me, who was put to death for our sin and was put in the tomb. And a number of days later, he was back up on his feet again. We believe in the way the Lord works. As that wonderful hymn in Philippians chapter 2 tells us about Jesus Christ going down from heaven into the place of suffering, even the place of humiliation, of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because God the Father specializes in taking what is the lowest of the low and lifting it up high. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we remember his words in that wonderful sermon on the mount when Jesus describes what it looks like whenever we live life in the Spirit here and now and trust in the fact that we too will experience bodily resurrection. Next week, we'll have the privilege of five people being baptized here. Let's not miss the symbolism of baptism, that we go with Christ down into death and know that in faith we will rise to everlasting life.
Jesus said in those wonderful pithy sayings of the Beatitudes, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Nothing to do with bereavement whatsoever. Jesus is giving us catchy, pithy sayings so that we will remember them and reflect on them. And what He's saying is this, God blesses those who lament deeply over their own sinfulness because they will be strengthened. God blesses those, says Jesus, who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Do we believe this in this celebrity power-crazed culture that says it's those who have money and celebrity that have the real power? Jesus Christ says not so. God blesses those who are humble, for they're the ones whom God will give everything to. In the book of Job, perhaps the thing that describes for us most fully what it means to have a mindset which trusts in the love of God is Job 1.21. I came naked from my mother's womb. I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. The New Testament letter of James reveals the heart of someone who has discovered the beauty of living according to the Spirit's wisdom rather than the world's wisdom. He writes to his fellow believers, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Repentance. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. James describes the wisdom of Christ as being from heaven, pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. If only I and we were to live lives like that. And James opens his letter with these wonderful words, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Someone who had discovered what it means to live with a confidence and a trust in the love and the provision of God was a French monk called Dominic Vallon. He contracted cancer, and he asked to be released from the monastery during the last number of months of his life. He knew he, knew he was dying, and he asked if he could leave the monastery and go and live in the slums of Paris. He took a job as a night watchman 
And each morning on the way back from work, he would sit on a park bench and he would just talk to the people and listen to the people who came by. Often the language was far from clean and the stories were pretty filthy. But he didn't judge them. He just listened to their stories and shared his sweets with them. Not before, not, not long after, someone then asked him the question, so Dominic, tell us about you. What's your story? And once he told them, there was no more swearing. There were no more filthy stories. The people that tended to gather around him on those mornings on the park bench were prostitutes, drunken men, and men who just came out early in the morning to watch the young girls walk by from their night out to leer at them. He died not long after, and 7,000 people went to his funeral. And yet, what had he done? He had listened to people's stories and shared his sweets with them. But somehow through that, people have been touched by the love of God. On Dominic Vallum's tombstone, it simply says these words, Dominic Vallum, a witness to Jesus Christ. They found not long after in his flat that had one little cold water tap. They found his journal that he wrote in each day. And his last entry read this, I can genuinely say that I have no other interest other than the love of God. If we wonder what the Spirit of Jesus Christ is doing in us over the months and years of our lives, it is this. He's bringing us to the place, hopefully, where we can say, genuinely, I have no other interest other than the love of God. Let's pray together.